A year or two before we left Gainesville, I was leading my nieces and their parents down Lachua Trail at Payne's Prairie State Park. As we made our way from the parking lot out to the beginning of the trail, I stopped the whole group and pointed up to a set of power lines connected by a crossbar. And I looked at my nieces, who were probably six or seven, really meaningfully and said, last summer there was a bald eagle nest with two baby bald eagles in it right there. And they glanced at the now empty poles and looked back at me as if waiting for the rest of the story. So we walked a little bit further out of the forested early part of the trail to the prairie itself, and I motioned to a clump of tall grass 30 yards away. Last week, a yellow-breasted chat was singing right at the top of that grass. It was at sunrise, and his chest was so bright in the light that it hurt my eyes. And the twins stared out into the distance, presumably wondering which clump of tall grass I meant on a 40,000-acre prairie. As we made our way around Alachua Sink, scanning the water for alligators, what they were really there to see, I pointed to the bare branch of a shrub on the opposite bank. That's where I got my life-belted kingfisher. It's cobalt blue with this big, spiky crest. And they looked at the bare branch and back at me and blinked. And that's when I realized I am no fun to go to the prairie with anymore. For me, walking down that trail and out over the boardwalk, the whole place was alive with memories, apparitions of the things that I had seen and experienced in the past just popping up as vivid and exciting as when I had first come across them. The spot where I'd found a baby great horned owl caught up in a wire fence clacking its huge beak together to threaten me away the mud flats that I'd seen filled with hundreds or thousands of sandhill cranes dancing and calling, the grassy ditch where I'd studied the details of my first song sparrow. These were special places for me, sites that contained important stories from my life, and I wanted to share them with my family. And maybe the girls would have been interested in seeing eaglets or owlets or chats or even a song sparrow, But looking into that birdless ditch, I had to admit that on its own, it wasn't that compelling. I wonder if this is how Jacob felt in the promised land, wandering around with all of those sons past familiar spots. This is the place where I dreamt of a ladder reaching up to heaven and angels coming down, and I realized God was in this place, and I never knew it. That's the rock I was sleeping on. I call it Bethel. Dad, it's, it's just a rock. It's not the only one that Jacob sets up. It's not even the only stone he sets up at Bethel. This one over here, it's from when I was running away from your uncle and God gave me a new name and promised to bless me. They stare at him, blinking. Can we go? And Jacob takes them to a heap of stones further away. This heap is a sign of God witnessing the deal I made with your grandpa Laban, that we would stop trying to trick each other. Dad, how many more rocks do we have to look at? 
For Jacob, the whole place is alive with memories, but for a moment, he stops looking with his own eyes, stops seeing these places for the important encounters they contain, and looks at them with his kids' eyes. They're just empty rocks. For Jacob, the world is alive with reminders of God's presence, reminders of God's activity in his own life, of the times God has saved him, inspired him, changed him, stories that are just as vivid and exciting to him as when he lived them the first time. And he wants to pass that on to his family and his friends. He set up these rocks so that he could take them back right to this spot so he could show them it was here. Angels, heaven, a new name. My life changed forever. I was just minding my own business, going about my day, and God broke in right here. It could happen to you too. It's good to share those kinds of markers, to tell those stories. In birding, it's, it's how you learn what's possible and what's likely. You meet a fellow birder on the trail and they let you know what they're seeing that day or, or what they've seen that week or what they were lucky enough 10 years ago to see right in that spot. It tells you what to look out for. Before you even go to a park, you look for the checklist online and you find out which birds are there and in which season and how commonly, and you check eBird for the most recent info, and you go on Facebook groups to see what rarities are popping up and exciting people. I say you, but I, of course, mean me. You subscribe to the local listserv and start receiving detailed descriptions of every unusual bird in the county. That's how I got my start, reading this guy named Rex Rowan writing about a crested caracara that wandered up from South Florida where it's supposed to live, that was hanging out on the prairie for a couple weeks. Reading his description and Googling the caracara's picture got me curious. It made me want to get a look. It made me wonder what else I was missing. And the next thing I knew, I was buying a $300 pair of binoculars. I think I wanted to let my nieces know about those baby bald eagles to get them curious, to wake them up. I think it was my way of saying, we live in the kind of world where a nest of bald eagles can be right over your head. Stay alert, keep your eyes peeled. There are incredible things to be seen, and for so long, I did not know it. I think faith works basically the same way. We read the stories of other people's encounters with God to find out what's possible, what's likely. Where has God shown up in the past? What environments seem especially suited to encountering the divine? Wilderness, water. We read them to our kids and to ourselves, or we come to church and have them read in hopes that it will wake us up, maybe in hopes that it will capture our imagination, to remind ourselves we live in the kind of world in which God, the creator of the universe, love itself, can be right over your head, floating down on a ladder or offering a blessing or changing your identity or bringing peace between you and your enemy, you and your family. Stay alert. Keep your eyes peeled. There are incredible things to be seen, and for so long, I did not know it.
it's good to share those stories, the Bible stories and our own stories. Good to have big buildings of stone made on the spot to alert us. This is a place that love has shown up again and again. Good to have practices and traditions that have worked for other people. In this season, we always do this, and it seems to work so far. It's good to remember and share what's worked, to tell the stories of what happened for us right here in this spot. But it's not enough. Now that I've been in Chicago for almost three and a half years, further away from those spots and from the people who inspired me to visit them regularly, I sometimes go months without birding, specifically the months November through April. I may notice a bird in the trees in our yard or something might fly across my path, but I go months without putting my binoculars on and walking slowly and quietly somewhere in one of those sacred spots. In those seasons, I try to live off the old memories. I think of the birds that I've seen before. I write sermons for you about them. I scroll longingly through the Chicago Audubon Facebook group, tell myself, I really should get out there. In December, I missed out on what was probably the rarest bird I will ever have the chance to see in Chicago. An ancient murelet a bird that lives in the Arctic Circle between Alaska and Russia, one came all the way over here to Lake Michigan, just outside the Montrose Bird Sanctuary. It flew thousands of miles in the wrong direction toward me, and I did not cross the last mile and a half to see it. I was too busy, it stayed too short a time, the weather was bad, blah, blah, blah. In moments like these, I wonder, am I still a birder at all? Is it still exciting and important to me if I don't go out and do it? Can I be a birder if I just read stories of other people birding or remember places I've seen birds before? Can I sustain my interest by looking at the spots where birds have been, empty poles and birdless ditches? Sometimes I try to do faith that way, too. I'll confess. Just reading about other people's encounters with God. I think, actually, there's a lot of Christianity that that kind of wants to convince us that's the point. That the most important things we can do to form lives of faith are to read Scripture and practice the traditions of the church. That the way of Jesus means telling the stories of where other people met him studying their encounters, going to big stone buildings to look at empty rocks. So much of Christian faith strikes me as telling the stories of where God has shown up in the past, pointing to the place where the bald eagles used to be. But when I'm engaged in my faith, when I'm going out regularly, I know this leaves out the best part the most important part. The Franciscan priest Richard Rohr writes, nothing in the Bible says that primary authority lies in the scripture or in doctrines themselves. 
These serve only to point beyond themselves to the hard facts of reality, life itself, and from there to authentic encounters with God. The point of Scripture is to point us toward the very thing that the characters themselves did, some experience or of encounter itself that kept them there and gave them their passion and direction. The stories of other people's experiences can be helpful, but they're no substitute for encountering the living God ourselves. Later on that visit, we took our nieces kayaking on the Itchituckney River. It's a totally flat, totally clear stream where you don't really even have to paddle. As we floated through this prehistoric-looking cypress forest, scaring dozens of turtles off their logs, I noticed this small flycatcher perched on a snag overhanging the water. I decided to try again. See that little gray bird over there wagging its tail? That's an eastern Phoebe. Watch when he takes off. He'll do this hovering flight like a helicopter while he's picking bugs out of the air. There he goes. They watched with fascination as he did his flycatcher thing right on cue. We floated on, and they started to ask about the other birds we were seeing, egrets and herons and wood ducks. As we made our way around the last bend in the river to the place where we drag our boats out, one of my nieces called out, Uncle Vince, it's a Phoebe! And sure enough, there it was, wagging its tail as plain as day. And I realized with hope that maybe I hadn't completely ruined birds for them. Friends, we live in the kind of world where Phoebes are balancing on snags right beside us, where eaglets are crying out for food right over our heads. We live in the kind of world where an ancient murlet can somehow wind up in Chicago, though probably only once in a lifetime. Stay alert. We can never be too busy for such miracles. We live in the kind of world where God can pop up while we are minding our own business, the kind of world in which encounters with love are as common as rocks. Every boring, empty place you go, God is in that spot, whether or not you knew it. I could tell you some stories. But please don't take my word for it. It wouldn't be nearly as interesting as getting outside walking slowly and quietly, keeping your eyes peeled.